Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Well, welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez. Uh, We're here in West Palm Beach, Florida today. And I'm here with my guest, Matt Stone. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. And Matt is, uh, you could tell by his young looks, he's 19 <laughs> years old. Matt, I think you might be the youngest person on my podcast now. Really? Yeah. Well, it's it's an honor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's an honor to have you. Um, Matt also uh, was recently married this year. So yep. congratulations. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, he also does not go to college. <laughs> he has a lot of different... That is true. A lot of different um, types of work he does. We're going to yeah. get into that. But the way that I met Matt and one of his uh, ways that he's more famous uh, is at 19 years old, of course, is uh, he is well known in many different circles as an Elvis Presley tribute tribute artist. Yep, that's right. That's and the new politically correct way to say it. You know, <laughs> We're going to get into that because uh, anyway, I first learned um, of Matt through seeing him uh, not too far. We're actually here in Palm Beach. Right behind us, if you can see this on YouTube, we have uh, the beautiful Palm Beach Island. Um, the breakers out, out here behind my head. Um, it's just a really beautiful day out here. Uh, so we're sitting in West Palm Beach looking over to uh, really one of the most uh, wealthy areas in the country right yeah, here. Yeah, that's for sure. Palm Beach, Florida. And uh, Henry Flagler you know, brought that railroad down many, many years ago and, and, and helped populate this area. But on, on the there's another island just to the north uh, called Singer Island. And I yep. saw Matt perform at the Islander. Yeah, the Islander uh, Grill and Tiki Bar, it's called. It's in the Palm Beach Shores Resort. And so uh, I was I was there, uh, thanks to um, our mutual friend Ben Starling. Uh, I saw Ben one day a couple months ago post on Facebook uh, a picture with you, I think. Uh-huh. And th- he said, you know, Matt is an Elvis tribute artist. And I was like, I'm a huge Elvis fan, Ben. I was like, I got is he, when is he performing again? And he's like, well, he's here on many Tuesday nights. So <laughs> I said, great. So I went the next week. and um, But anyway, here's what a few things that really intrigued me about Matt. Uh, first of all, I thought this guy is only 19. He's already married. He doesn't go to college. Uh, he's mastered singing songs from more than a half century ago from artists like Elvis Presley. And, uh, and, and I think this man is, uh, is living in a different time. For sure. <laughs> so. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's very difficult to live in a generation such as my own where America has just changed so much over the past couple decades and we've really lost our sense of of direction in a lot of ways so i think the more that we could remember the past and remember what a fantastic country we had just you know 40 years ago 50 years ago and so forth uh it, it really does help to bring back those memories when times were calmer and everybody loved america and people were happier yeah, and you know, speaking of loving America, Elvis Presley loved America, and uh, I think also just he's a great American figure. Absolutely. And it's nice to just uh, recall, you know, when I was sitting there at the Islander uh, Tiki Bar and Grill, is that the name? Yeah, of yeah, that's that's the full name. I just call it the Islander usually. Yeah, on Singer Island. Um, I, you know, it was actually my first time. I, I don't know if I've had ever been on Singer Island before, mm-hmm. um, because it's kind of like uh, I want to say the Riviera Beach exit, and then you go east. Yeah. And then you got to go, you know, over a bridge. So, but it's a beautiful island, and of course, there's some hotels and resorts there. And the Islander—that's part of a resort, right? Yeah, it's part of the Palm Beach Shores Resort. It's the restaurant for the. Uh, 
I would consider it a hotel, but it's actually really big with timeshares. So people buy a timeshare there and then they come back and reserve their time every year. Yeah. So I get a lot of regular customers who come in and see my show every year. Oh, that's good. Because I was wondering, like, you know, Ben and I went there. We knew what we were getting into because he had been there before and he mm-hmm. was on the island. And I knew what I, I knew I was going there for an Elvis tribute artist. But I was wondering if some people just kind of show up at the restaurant and all of a sudden... There's a, there's a young man singing Elvis and kind of looking like Elvis. Yeah, on occasion, there's um, there are people who are just locals who come in, and which is interesting because usually I wouldn't think of going to a hotel for dinner yeah. unless it's the Breakers, which I don't know if you could see in the shop, but it's a beautiful place right over there. But um, yeah, on occasion, we do get some people who just come in for dinner. A lot of times they hear about the show that's going on and they come for the show, not necessarily just to, you know, eat dinner. But uh, most of the clientele is people from out of town who are coming in and visiting and just enjoying the beach. And they happen to come in for dinner and stay all night listening to Elvis. Yeah, no, it's really great. So it was, it was awesome to just kind of sit back and and hear a lot of great Elvis tunes. I mean, I think that first night I saw you, I feel like you played like 30 different, <laughs> played, sang like 30 different Elvis songs. You got a great voice. Yeah. So we're going to go back and, uh, so we're not interviewing Elvis Presley. My mom wanted to remind me, by the way, before I interviewed you. She <laughs> says, uh, Francisco, you're not interviewing Elvis. Just remember that today. <laughs> I said, okay, mom. Uh, I remember. But um, anyway, but we're sitting here and we're interviewing Matt Stone. And so, Matt, I want to know, we're in West Palm Beach at the moment. Um, where were you born and raised and where do you live today? Uh, I was born in Wellington, Florida, and uh, raised around the Wellington Lake Worth area, which is you know twenty minutes from here. Not yeah. not too bad. Always in Palm Beach County, and uh, when I got married, Palm Beach County. Oh my goodness, the real estate since twenty twenty, with the amount of people flooding this state, has gone through the roof. It's like three thousand dollars a month for a one bedroom apartment in Boca. Yeah. So um, we crossed the border into Martin County, which is a little bit you know more affordable and still you know, a stone's throw away from everything. So right now we live um, at the next, next county up. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Martin's Martin's nice. It's actually really growing. Uh, Stewart is in Martin County. It is. Which is where yeah. I saw you uh, as well, but I'll uh, we'll get to that in a few <laughs> minutes. What I want to ask you a little bit, though, is you're obviously a very talented singer. Thank um, you. As far as I can tell, um, unless, unless, um, unless it's part of the show, but it looks like you also <laughs> play some instruments. I do. Um, so tell us a little bit how you first got into performing music. Well, when I was about four years old, um, me and my dad used to watch Led Zeppelin all the time, just videos, Song Remains the same movie, uh, all kinds of stuff from the Led Zeppelin catalog, and I just loved it. When I was four, five, six years old, I was wearing a blonde wig, and I was... <laughs> I was wearing a blonde wig, and I was singing into a turkey baster on the bed, recording videos wanting to be Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. When I I was nine, um, my dad got me my first real guitar, and uh, his dad played. He played a little bit, so you can say the guitar kind of ran in the family, and he wanted me to learn it, and I just loved it, and I took off and ran with it, and was everywhere. I would always have my guitar with me. I just played it all the time. Um, I couldn't. And sing how old all. were you? I was nine years old when that happened. Wow! And I couldn't sing at all. And uh, <laughs> I always thought I would be the guitar player in the band, never the singer, because I could not sing. It was like nails on a chalkboard. So when I was about twelve years old, all of a sudden I find this guy named Elvis Presley. <laughs> and it's not like I didn't know who Elvis was, because you know everybody knows who Elvis was. I remember one time there was a foreign exchange student who moved into our neighborhood from uh, from China, and he'd never heard of Elvis Presley. And I, I was in shock because who hasn't heard of Elvis? <laughs> but um, it's almost like you got to be in a communist country exactly, to not hear of Elvis. Not yeah. Know of Elvis, yeah. 
but um yeah well, that's a whole other story but that's also but, how old was that person uh he was like 14 15 yeah maybe. so you know that's I could see somebody young in an, in a communist country, but I would actually think that probably yeah. anybody over about thirty, even in yeah. China, for the most part, hopefully would know. Yeah, unless they're, they've yeah. grew up in like a, a rural village somewhere, you know. Yeah, I would think if you're living in Beijing. I mean, I was in Beijing actually in 2013. My brother and I were walking on the street one day. It was not a statue of Elvis, but it was a statue of Michael Jackson, who for <laughs> uh, a minute was halfway related to Elvis because he was married to true. Lisa Marie, uh, but. They obviously knew who Michael Jackson was in China. Uh huh. So I'm yeah, probably in the bigger knew. cities, it's probably a little bit, a little bit uh, better with understanding Western culture. But this kid had no idea. He he looked at me like I had three eyes when I told him. And I started showing him all these pictures around my room of Elvis and this Elvis song. And I was like, "You've never heard of this guy." So you've been that big of an Elvis fan since you were like 12, 14? Yeah, 12, 13 years old. I got really, really into it. And naturally, what was, what what first sparked the interest in Elvis other than just you liked playing guitar? <laughs> well, um, I was a huge fan of the show Full House, which oh, yeah. starred John Stamos, huge Elvis fan. Oh and yeah. <laughs> when he brought, when he was cast as the character of Uncle Adam at the time, he uh, he talked to Jeff Franklin, the producer, and he said, "This guy, we want to make him like you know, kind of like." an Elvis fan and he's really into all that Elvis's twin brother who is still who is still born his name was Jesse mm. Uncle Jesse sounds a lot, like a much better name for the character and they changed the character and uh, really made Elvis a huge part of who this character was and I was watching that show throughout my entire life so I always knew who Elvis was but I never actually sat down and listened to it. So, so Matt, you're 19, uh, so you were not even alive when Full House was first on the air. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't. Uh, I'm thinking to myself, how did he watch Full House? So you obviously watched some reruns. I actually, in the show, Uncle Jesse, was he an Elvis fan? Like, he was. I don't even remember that. Yeah, he was a huge Elvis fan. There was an episode where um, he was hard up for some money, and he took a job as an Elvis impersonator to, to make ends meet. And uh, it was actually the episode on his wedding episode. The song that he chose for his wedding song was Jailhouse Rock. Mm. So he sang Jailhouse Rock, and the song was just playing in my head, uh, Uncle Jesse's version. And I went and I looked up the original, and I was just completely blown away. Watching Elvis slide across tables and all that stuff. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world, and I wanted to do it. That night, I went home, and I grabbed my uh, leather jacket out of my closet and just started dancing around and... Like I said, I couldn't sing at all, so that that kind of came later. I had to learn, I had to learn how to be Elvis after already loving Elvis. So when did you learn to sing? How um, did you learn to sing? So when I was thirteen or fourteen years old, starting out, like I said, I I couldn't sing at all. So my parents tried to get me some voice lessons, which didn't help. <laughs> it was still exactly the same until I was about fifteen, and I. I don't know, something just clicked, and it might have been puberty, it might have been my voice dropping to the point where I found out I could sing these notes, mm. but all of a sudden, I just was able to find some of that, I don't want to say frogginess, because Elvis's voice wasn't froggy, but when I first tried doing the Elvis voice and actually learning it, it was a little bit froggy, and as time's gone on, the frogginess has left, but the intonation has still been Elvis. Um yeah, well, well, you know, if, if you if you have the opportunity to listen to Matt today, I mean, 
I'm telling you, uh, you sound, I mean, it's almost hard to believe uh, this young 19 year old <laughs> young man here can like really produce some of those notes. That sounds very close to Elvis. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's pretty darn good. Yeah. I mean, my, my vocal register is so much deeper than my, than my speaking voice. So people always look at me and they're like, yeah. how did that big voice come out of your little diaphragm? One thing I noticed when, when I was first, uh, you know, watching your perform at the Islander was you, your singing voice is so much like Elvis. Thank you. But then when you, you, you dive right back into being Matt Stone in between songs <laughs> and you've got this other like young 19 year old like voice, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, and so it's, uh. It's almost, I, I'm, I'm, it's funny, I think I was telling Ben, like, you know, he should maybe just stick to Elvis while he's on stage. Like, <laughs> Yeah, usually it, I do. <laughs> usually I, um, when I'm on a stage that's more of a theater, yeah. I consider myself to be more of, more of an actor. And, you know, what I love so much about my show is I'm not just being an Elvis character and I'm not just there to be the Elvis guy. I'm there to recreate who Elvis actually was in this particular time period that I'm portraying. So you have to get into the mindset of who Elvis was and say you're doing a show from 1970, you're 1970 Elvis. So at the Islander, it's a little bit more casual, a little bit more laid back. It's just, you know, me singing songs that I want to sing, usually within a niche era but it's still more casual when i'm in a theater doing my show which is called the elvis presley experience by the way make sure you go <laughs> look that up um it, i'm more of an actor in the sense that i i portray the character yeah so my mother and i went and saw you in stewart um what is the name of the theater the, the act? act studio theater act studio theater in stewart it was great um we saw your gi blues performance <laughs> which is themed off of one of elvis's earlier movies gi mm -hmm. blues uh, which is fantastic. It's all about, you know, military experience. And mm -hmm. he's playing a character, but he also just got back from being exactly. in the military. Yeah. So it was, it's a great, but he, but you, so you're in uniform, you do it, but it's funny because at one point I, I can't remember. So you, you, the whole first half of the show, which is like a little over an hour, mm -hmm. it's all GI blues songs. Right. And then you did an intermission. And then I think you, you played a bunch of other Elvis songs, maybe from that era. Right. So what I did on that show was I, I knocked, I I started the show out by doing Elvis as Tulsa McLean, his character in G.I. Blues. No relation to <laughs> McLean from Die Hard, John mm. McLean. <laughs> but um, so I was Tulsa McLean and Elvis, when he first got out of the army, he had lost a little bit of his southern accent. He was really self-conscious about his about his you know, Southern drawl. And he was trying to talk a little bit more like a northerner. So it's yeah. uh, Interesting. so Florida. In the Palm Beach area is definitely not deep south. So I have to be an, a northerner trying to sound like a southerner trying to sound like a northerner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so Elvis is, he's talking in the movie and he, he's got a little bit of a southern drawl, but at the same time, he's trying to lose it. And so you, you have to play the character the same way that Elvis played the character. But then when you go back to being Elvis... For the second half, where I'm doing Elvis's recording sessions fresh out of the army, mm. you're, you're back to you're back to being Elvis at the time. But what's interesting is you're talking to the crowd in the theater as Elvis, right? And at one point, you said something like, "Oh, I've got a show coming up at the Fountain." I don't know. You said in Miami Beach, which yeah. I know I know it was at the Fountain Blue because I've seen pictures right. there. And you said with something with Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra. and somebody else, I forget. Uh, Sammy Davis was there. Yeah. Uh, his daughter, Nancy, was there too. A lot of the Rat Pack was. So there. as I'm driving home with my mom later, she goes, 
is he doing a show down in Miami now? Is that what he was saying? And I said, no, mom, that was Matt being Elvis. Elvis was going right. to go down to Miami. And I said, actually, I pulled up on my phone because just this January, I was at the Fountain Blue. Um, it's actually where I recorded an interview with James O'Keefe. Really? Um, in January. And as they were, Project Veritas was doing, I think we did that as episode 111, but Project Veritas was doing a whole event down there at the Fountain Blue. Mm-hmm. And as I was walking in the lobby, there were pictures of Elvis. And I took them, uh, they're on my phone. I'll show mm-hmm. them to you after the interview. But the, uh, I said, I, so I showed him to my mom on the way home. I said, actually, this is what he was talking about. This is where Elvis went. Right. He yeah. went to the Fountain Blue. Fresh out of the army, Elvis, um, he does his first recording sessions like a week after he gets back, records a ton of songs, a lot of, uh, multiple of them turning out to be number one hits. It's Now or Never, Are You Lost in a Night, Stuck on You. And he goes down to Miami. He uh, Frank asks him to wear a tuxedo. And this time, uh, uh, have you seen the new Elvis movie? Yeah, Elvis, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah the so, new movie um, with Austin Butler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when Elvis went on the Steve Allen show and they tried to put him in a tux and tails yeah. in 1956, it was being the new Elvis and they were, it was really just a joke. They were trying to make fun of him and put him into a tailcoat and make him sing to a hound dog. And Elvis absolutely hated that performance. By this point, he gets back and the army had cleaned up his image so much, not that he had even changed, but being seen as the all-American boy coming back. Right. Um, Frank asked him to wear a tuxedo, and he's like, sure. So he went down to a tuxedo shop in Miami, got fitted for a tux, and went on the show at the Fountain Blue. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, we're going to get into some other things on this in a few, but I want to go back to Matt Stone. Uh, Matt grew up in uh, South Florida here, Palm Beach County, where we're at. Um, and Matt, tell me, uh, you know, today mo- um, so many young people are being told they need to go to college. Right. And you're 19, you're college age, but you're not in college. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your educational path was like growing up, public, private schools, homeschool. I don't know what you did. Mm-hmm. And then did you, d- I think you did some dual enrollment. Tell me a little bit right. about that. Uh, so I was always in public school. I hated every second of it. <laughs> if you can get your kids out of public school and put them in private school, charter school, I don't care what it is. Just get them out of public schools. The entire system is such a disaster today, um, especially today. I mean, I got lucky. I'm so afraid for the stuff that they were pushing on my sister, and she actually was just taken out and put in private school. So congratulations to my parents. <laughs> How Thank old your sister? Much. She is 13. Okay. Is that uh, your only sibling? Uh, I have an older sister, too, who's okay. also married, and she's a military wife, and she lives in South Carolina. But um, when I was going into my... Yeah, it was, so what did you do? Uh, you didn't go to college, your educational yeah, path, p- When I was school? in my junior year, uh, I, was, I just hated <laughs> public school so much that um, I kept begging and begging my mom to, to make me a homeschool student because... During my sophomore year, I think out of my entire schedule of like eight classes, two of them were actual classes because I was working ahead so much and taking classes online so I didn't have to take them in school that my entire day was just a waste. It was a joke because I was working so much outside of school to finish early that they made me sit in class for things like Mm. student aid or... I took a piano class when I already knew how to play piano. So they're teaching us Mary Had a Little Lamb and I just go... And be done for the rest of the two hours <laughs> because there was nothing else for me to take. So after a while, it just got to the point where my mom kind of understood where I was coming from, that this is, I'm doing all the classes online. I might as well just finish it online. And I was also missing school to go to shows. She let me be homeschooled during my junior year. 
Also, I went to Elvis Week, which just happens to fall on the first week of school in Florida. So it was actually during Elvis Week, I missed the entire first week of school. And on that weekend, she was like, yeah, we're just going <laughs> to let you be home of school right before I was supposed to go back to school, which I was dreading every second of. Um, was so, part of when you, Were you still in high school when COVID started? Um, or did you? I, I was I was already homeschooled. Yeah. Oh, you but, were in homeschooled by that think, point. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of people were forced been, to be homeschooled at that yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been my. Uh, that would. Yeah. But, I was ahead of the curve. But they weren't really. You know, we should. I should clarify that people weren't really homeschooled. Right. They were in public school at home. At home. Yeah. Which was such a horror story for so many parents once they actually saw what the heck was going on yeah. with their kids' education. I think. COVID probably caused more kids to be taken out of public education and put into private education than anything else. It did. So it mm-hmm. really was a blessing in disguise to, um, even though it probably ruined so many lives and social skills and all that oh, by absolutely. putting these kids into, into school at home. If the parents actually thought, wow, this is not working and put their kids in private school, I think it was really worth it. But um, So you graduate. Yeah, so I graduate early i think i finished my last class on the summer going into senior year so i couldn't graduate a year early because i hadn't finished by june so i finished it online in like august so just dual enrolled for my senior year because the state of florida or the taxpayers in florida will pay for your education your college education at a community college while you're in your senior year so all the classes were free i went in and it was I took business marketing and it was advertising school at Palm Beach State College. And I swear, in my English composition class, my teacher told us that we have to capitalize the letter I when using it as a standalone word. So it's like, I went to the beach. Mm -hmm. She had to tell the class to capitalize (laughs) the letter I. And I was just so blown away by that. And I told my mom, okay, I'm going to get my associate's degree. I'm going to finish early. And after that year, I just thought, oh, my goodness. So that was, in a, that was in a college class? Yes, that was oh, a college wow. class. That's, that's... College English Composition one. The entire school was such a complete joke. And I don't know if it was just because it was community college, but I don't have anything against community college. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd, I'd probably be hearing the same thing if I went to Harvard and paying $60,000 a year <laughs> to get it. But... um. So I just decided, okay, I'm 18. I can't do this anymore. At Or no, I was 17. I can't do this anymore. And at 17, <laughs> this is a fun story. So I met my now wife. And we were just talking and whatnot. And I decided, okay, I need to, you know, get my act together. <laughs> <laughs> I need to learn to start, you know, making money. I can't just be a, a college student for forever. And I was already out of college at the time, I had already decided that I was going to leave, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And I decided, you know, doing Elvis exclusively is a little bit unstable, especially with what happened in 2020. Oh yeah. All of my friends who were relied on this for a living were completely out of work. Yeah. So I went and I applied and I, I got a job that I wasn't qualified for really, which I think is another one of the greatest pieces of advice in the world. Apply for jobs you're not qualified for because there's no better way to learn than being in that job. I was hired as a part-time, like a fellowship, like a paid internship. Within a month, I was a full-time employee, like one of the top on the staff. That's great. Yeah. So just 
putting yourself out there and dipping your toes in the water or not even dipping your toes and just jumping into the water, whether you're qualified for it or not, you will learn skills that you will never learn in college by, by actually. So, uh, how did you come across a job like that? Some, somebody might, there might be some people that might try to apply for a job like that. Not qualified. Doesn't, don't get the job. Maybe become frustrated. This person won't hire me. There might also be uh, jobs that you don't think are qualified for, but you go. You, how did you mm-hmm. find this opportunity? Well, a friend of mine actually worked um, at a competing organization, another um, company, and you actually know the CEO, uh, Derek. Who? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he worked over at Extrats, and um, I w- He was a yeah man. You got to get a job at Extrats. It's such a cool company. And um, then he told me about this competing company. And um, he told me all about this company and said, hey, man, you got to go in and just, you know, apply until, you know, Derek's ready to hire you. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually applied and I didn't get the job. I never heard back. Uh, About a week later, I applied for an internship um, with Morgan Zeggers. Who would actually be really I know good. Morgan. Yeah, you know Morgan? Yeah. yeah. I was her intern for a while, and I was making content. All right, Morgan, this means you have to blow this podcast up. Exactly, right? okay. yeah. We're going we're gonna to do a little message for Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Morgan's a great, great girl. And ironically, I was actually got to work with her again after I ended my internship. But um, so I did an internship with her for like, a month maybe maybe two months just making content for the for the yas page and i decided to apply again from that time i got the job so doing an internship for three four weeks meant the different in the related field meant the difference between not getting the job and getting so the job. you know one thing too one, one piece of advice i like to give people it's not always easy for or even a lot of people can't do internship was it a paid internship or was it not paid um that one was not paid yeah so um, you know, it's funny. I feel like when I was younger, I would probably tell somebody, oh, I would never take an unpaid internship. Mm-hmm. But then I, I worked at the James Madison Institute for nine years, a free market think mm-hmm. tank here in Florida. I had a lot of interns. Um, and the thing is, they were there were some of them we ended up hiring. Most we didn't because we just didn't mm-hmm. have that capacity. But others, we may, we had great recommendations for them. We exactly. were able to, they, they gained skills at our organization. And then they were able to go on to somewhere else with that experience and or even if that that experience could be could have been somewhere else in the think tank movement or it could have been just somewhere else in tallahassee mm-hmm. could have been for a state legislator going to work for other people helps you build networks and connections mm-hmm. and experience and so there's a lot of uh, great opportunities and for those that you know i would say uh, i mean so almost all of our interns were actually college students we were based in tallahassee so most of them went to Florida State. Sometimes in the summer, we would get an out-of-state uh, college student, but they were like um, they were from Tallahassee locally, so they were back home from like whatever, wherever they went off to in another mm-hmm. state. Um, and so, if you can do that for three or four months, and even though you're not getting paid, most of those internships are like ten to fifteen hours a week. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot, but you're 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 gaining so much experience and meeting so many people. And we would take our interns to a lot of cool events too, where they would be in rooms that they wouldn't normally get to be in if otherwise not interning there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, if I, if doing an internship for three weeks and just creating three pieces of content a week for this page meant the difference between getting a job that now pays me very well 
and not getting a job, I mean, do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're going to you're going to pay to go to college to learn, but you're not going to just you're not going to do a free right. internship. Yeah. Right. So you're going to pay $40,000 a year to have something nice to put on a resume, but you're not going to do an internship for free that costs you nothing just because you're not getting paid, but you're you're throwing away so much money to go get another thing. Yeah, no, that's resume. such a good point you make is how much money we spend on college exactly. but are not willing but to you just won't do a job for free for a couple weeks yeah. or a couple months. Yeah, um, my friend Zach Slayback has a great um, series of books he's written and that he's a real big, uh, he's a featured innovator in the Fearless Journeys community now as well. He's been on this podcast twice now, but he is a really big advocate of, um, he says, I love the idea of free work. He, he's done it. He's had people do it for him because it really, it's a testing ground. It also mm -hmm. just tells you what you might like and what you might not like, right? Exactly. You get to put your feet in the water, like you mm -hmm. said. Yeah. I mean, um, the way that it worked when I was hired I was running the um, the monetization side of things and working more with uh, with Facebook mm. and learning how to make money off of these YouTube videos for our clients that have you know big Facebook pages and make these videos for Facebook and that was my job was to um, come up with content for these people to put on Facebook to get Facebook money and uh, you know just like title the little selfie videos that they send in to get Facebook money and. After a while, the other side of the company that deals with more campaign stuff like tweet writing and graphic making and the more creative side of getting people elected, um, they asked me if I wanted to, you know, just try out writing a couple tweets. And all of a sudden, I was on that side of the company and I was no longer a fellowship intern. And a lot of those types of skills that you were just doing, you could be doing them for another side of the company, but those things are very applicable. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Beyond, uh, you know, to other companies too. So you you make yourself a more marketable candidate down the road. Exactly. Yeah. And um, not to mention what you're doing with the Elvis stuff. I know you've got yeah. a Facebook and YouTube and all that. Yeah. So all the skills that I have learned running uh, social media for politicians, I have applied to running my own Facebook page and running my own YouTube page and learning to get monetized on those platforms as well. So I'm not only making money from shows, I'm making money from the other side of it just content creation in within the Elvis world. So I think that I exploit a lot of the things that a lot of other Elvises can't do because they don't <laughs> they don't have the knowledge to, to do them. So I've taken so much of the knowledge that I've learned within the political game just within the past year and a half and apply them to my Elvis stuff. Yeah, so speaking of your Elvis stuff, uh, so obviously we heard a little bit about how you became uh, interested in Elvis mm -hmm. and and you grew to you know, I guess learn a lot of his songs and, 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 and try to get as close to his voice as possible. Mm -hmm. So what led you to become an Elvis Presley tribute artist and when did you start doing that? So when I first started out and I, I went to an open mic night with a friend of mine. Um, so there was this, um, I was 13 years old and I already knew who Elvis was and I and I was already listening to his music and I was already a fan but honestly when I first found Elvis I was listening to like three songs on repeat and Elvis had a thousand songs three songs like three songs yeah on repeat like nothing else and if it wasn't like a super fast rock song from 1957 I did not want to hear it with <laughs> if it was a ballad if it was even if it was a fast rock song from like four years later I, I didn't I didn't care. And I don't know what it was. I think I was just like in the mindset of, oh, Elvis was terrible after the 50s, which is not true at all. But um, 
you know, you fall within that mindset. And I guess I kind of got bored with it after a while, after, you know, a couple months of listening to the same couple songs. So I asked a friend of mine if he wanted to start a band. And when I say friend of mine, I had never actually met the, this kid before. Oh, I just knew him. And I knew he lived in the area and I knew that we had some mutual friends and he played guitar too. So we started this thing and he had told me about an open mic night that he had gone to a week before. And he asked me to go with him that week. So we sang a couple songs together and um, we sang a couple songs separately. And I sang Stairway to Heaven that night by Led Zeppelin. Wow. And um, I can't sing that song anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> My voice is a little bit too deep to hit those Robert Plant notes. But um, so I did that that night and I just started going back to that open mic night every single week just playing for tips. And then I found Suspicious Minds live in 1970 on YouTube. And I just stumbled across it. And from that moment on, when I was, I want to say, almost 14, maybe like late 13-year-old, <laughs> I don't know, um, and my mind was blown. And I knew this this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Before then, I was you know, kind of singing some Elvis songs in my show um, at the open mic night, but it wasn't being Elvis. It was Matt Stone singing Elvis in his own way. And I saw that performance, and I thought... I want to do that. I want to be that guy right there. You saw which performance? It was Suspicious Minds, August 11th. You saw Elvis's performance. Yes, okay. August 11th, 1970, dinner show in Las Vegas, which is ironically the same Suspicious Minds that they recreated for the new movie. Oh, yeah. And um, so I watched that performance, and I was just so blown away. I was about to go to high school, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go to the orchestra in high school, and I'm going to get all these people in the orchestra to play with me, and I'm going to create a whole band out of kids from high school. I never did that, <laughs> but <laughs> I was so hooked on, on this, and I knew I wanted to do it, and I really just had this dream about having this touring theater Elvis show, and I thought it would happen overnight, and obviously it didn't. I mean, that dream has started well, coming true. you were 14. Yeah, so. <laughs> that dream has started coming true within the past year. So, um, that's awesome. Yeah, well, that's really what can you also explain to us the difference between, um, a tribute artist and an impersonator? Okay. So really, I don't think there's much of a difference. So a lot of people try to say, um, that impersonators think they're Elvis and <laughs> tribute artists don't, they're paying tribute to Elvis. It's like somebody who sings at the Super Bowl and sings Purple Rain, even though they're not Prince. If that were actually the case, you wouldn't spend $5,000 on a jumpsuit, a wig, jewelry, makeup, everything else. That's that's being an impersonator. It's not being a tribute artist. There's a huge difference. So I think that the term Elvis tribute artist was created to be a more po politically correct way of saying Elvis impersonator because impersonator has such a bad connotation. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, within the Elvis business, 99 out of 100 people who do Elvis are absolutely terrible and give a terrible name to the industry. There are so many terrible, cheesy Elvis acts out there that you just, it, it's gotten such a bad rep over the years. Just like Johnny Carson said, if life were fair, Elvis would be alive and the impersonators would be dead. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, there are so many that are just so bad. I think the term tribute artist was created to take some of that away and kind of make it more like the professional ones are called tribute artists. So, I mean, it's a nicer way to say it, so I still use it sometimes. But if I were to say anything, I'm not a tribute artist, I would say that I'm more of an actor. And I'm more, I more portray Elvis on stage. I'm not just, you know, some guy who 
wants to sing Elvis songs in his own way and happens to spend $5,000 on a wig, hair, makeup. Well, I don't wear a wig, but yeah, yeah. everybody else does. Yeah. Jumpsuit, makeup, rings, all that. So um, I mentioned I went and saw your performance up in Stewart uh, mm-hmm. on GI Blues. It was a thematic performance. Um, uh, so I got a two-part question here. Um, can you uh, tell us what inspired you to do that like as a theme? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and then also, secondly, what other kind of thematic shows do you have coming up? All right, yeah. So um, I wanted to do GI Blues just because earlier in the year I did Blue Hawaii. So I've always wanted to kind of expand the typical Elvis show that I would do and do something that was a little bit different that wasn't being done. So there are Elvis festivals and whatnot where they have more themed shows at them because it's all like the, you know, the diehard Elvis fans who come in to see these little niche shows. And I thought, well, this is so entertaining. People love it. As long as I can find a few hits to put within this theme, I can start doing this at regular theaters and market them as, you know, thematic shows. So I did Blue Hawaii and I decided there wasn't enough in Blue Hawaii to do. So I added Girls, Girls, Girls to that because it was shot the next year in Hawaii. So I did the songs from those two movies, put them into a performance, and did them at the Act Theater. Um, and like you said earlier, um, I don't know if you did say this, but you know how I put movie clips to break yeah, up the songs? Yeah, you did that. Yeah. I didn't say that, but yeah, you put some movie yeah. clips on the, on the screen yeah, behind Yeah, so we you. had a projector behind me. Yeah. And between every single song we would have some kind of clip to set up the song, transitioning it to a death friend scene in the movie to kind of tell the yeah, story. Yeah, I liked it because, movie. yeah, you it helped tell right. the story. It helped set the scene. Right. Especially for maybe people who have either have never seen the movie right. or it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, I think that the show just got, there was a little bit too much of the screen and the projection of all that with Blue Hawaii. So I cut it back a little bit with G.I. Blues and I realized, okay, there's 12 songs on the G.I. Blues soundtrack. I can't just do G.I. Blues because, okay, you got Wooden Heart, that's a hit. You got Blue Suede Shoes, which was re-recorded for the soundtrack, that's a hit. But I need more. And I decided that, okay, G.I. Blues was a movie Elvis did right out of the army. Let's take the hit recording sessions he did right out of the army, throw them in there. So I think the point of doing thematic shows is being able to do the fun, different stuff that I like and that the super diehard Elvis fans like, but also make them enjoyable for... A regular audience. Yeah, no, it was great. To be honest with you, uh, so first of all, for those who have not seen one of these, uh, I've only seen you know the one other than the Islander, uh, <laughs> and um, and so the GI Blues was really great, um, and I think that um, for first of all, you do it like you run the whole thing pretty much on your own. I know there was a lighting guy in the back. Mm-hmm. You have so, you had somebody in the front that was playing some music on the background right, with so your this phone. Is, this is this is a fun story. Yeah. So usually at the Act Theater. Um, just really small. Yeah. It's like maybe 40, 30, yeah, 40, 40 seats. 40 seats, 40 yeah. seats, yeah. Yeah, it's a tiny place, so we do a lot of shows there because, I mean... It could sell you did four shows in three days, though. Yeah, four yeah. shows in three days. Um, obviously, you know, I don't only want to do a show and buy all the costumes for only one 40-seat show and take yeah. 50% of that, right? So I'd, I don't even think I would make a profit after buying the GI Blues outfit and all yeah. that. And... Um, so we do a lot of shows there, and usually Dennis, the owner of the theater who also runs lights, usually he runs all the sound, and he will hook up his board back there to my system. The first show, we were plagued with sound issues. It was, it was, I'm very gl- grateful you weren't there on Friday night, because there were so <laughs> many sound issues. It sounded terrible. 
after a while throughout the night, I was just like, I called a friend of mine on stage who was sitting in the front row and I was like, okay, just come up here and vamp for a second. I got to figure this out because I was so embarrassed with what was happening. So next show, my friend John came in who's from Iowa and he, uh, he comes in and he flies in from Iowa to see my shows all the time, which is so cool. But, um, I, uh, we were trying to set up before the show and get these sound issues that we had the first night figured out. It was 30 minutes of showtime. I had hair not done, not in costume, no makeup, none of this. We were about to start the show and I just told Dennis in the back, we don't have time to figure this out. I'm just going to use my stuff. John, he was there with me during rehearsal. Can you run the tracks from my phone? And that's what happened. And we threw it together right yeah. before the show started. And he was trying to figure out, because he'd never done If I before. wasn't sitting kind of where I was sitting, I might not have even noticed, but mm-hmm. I, I saw, kept seeing you kind of point him a couple times. Yeah. And I was like, oh, was that like, guy's running his sound yeah. you know, from the first row. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's sitting right in the front row. And I gave him my phone and he was scrolling up and down trying to find these songs. Um, anyway, considering what you're working with, yeah, um, you that's it's done a phenomenal job. <laughs> I actually you. think if somebody could invest in this guy uh, with uh, with some just a little bit more of an upgrade, a little bit, you mm-hmm. know, an audio guy, a sound, you know, whatever, yeah, a lighting. Usually, it would a really be theater, phenomenal. Thank you. Usually, within a bigger theater, you know, I have that kind of yeah. stuff, and usually the theater provides it. But unfortunately, unfortunately, within this one show, the in-house equipment just was not compatible with. So you've done Blue Hawaii. Hawaii and GI Blues. I think you got like a Christmas mm-hmm. and an Easter. What's yeah, coming I have a up? Christmas show coming up, and I have an Easter show coming up. There. Both in Stewart at the Act Theater. Right, right. So with the Christmas show. Uh, that one, I haven't really decided what I'm going to do yet because I was thinking just running down all of Elvis's Christmas songs, but I also do want to throw in some of the regular Elvis show as well. So what I'm, this is something that I've been tossing around in my head. So as you've seen Elvis, the new film, there's that whole thing in the end where with the song, if I can dream, they're running around and it's the Christmas special and the Colonel's telling them to do a Christmas song. I was thinking about doing a whole show, regular Elvis show, and throwing in Christmas songs and running down the Christmas catalog. Hmm. Ended up being, you know, a longer format show. Yeah. So I'm able to hit everything. Um, G.I. Blues was also pretty long. But, and then in the end, coming out in the white If I Can Dream suit, yeah. everybody's suspe- expecting If I Can Dream. In the movie, it was Here Comes Santa Claus that Colonel was trying to make him sing. In reality, it was I'll Be Home for Christmas, which is a much more tasteful choice, obviously, to, to close a Christmas special with. Um, I was thinking, do I'll be home for Christmas and then if I can dream to make it, you know, yeah, well, that's one of my favorite Elvis Elvis songs, if I can dream. So, Mm -hmm. uh, it's great. So, um, um, before we geek out a little bit more on Elvis, how can people Mm -hmm. find you, Matt Stone? Well, um, go on my Facebook page, Matt Stone is Elvis. Um, my YouTube channel is also Matt Stone is Elvis. And on Instagram, it's at real Matt Stone. Okay, so Matt Stone is Elvis on Facebook. And YouTube. And YouTube. Yeah, and then it's at Real Matt Stone. At Real Matt Stone on Instagram. So I'll put some of those links in the show notes. So wherever people are listening or watching, um, hopefully they can click on that as well. Okay, so we're going to geek out a little more on Elvis. Uh, So how many times have you been to Graceland? Um, I've honestly lost count. I think we're at about 10 times now. Eight, nine, 10 times. What was the first time? Uh, The first time I went in 20... 17, I believe, 
Oh no, no, it's 2016 because I don't know when the last time you've you've been. I've only been once, and it was in 2018. Okay, so you know how they have the whole like mall thing across the street, Elvis Presley, yeah. Memphis. So that was a pretty new complex when you went. Yeah. Um, that was built in 2017 okay. as a major upgrade from what they had before. Before it was kind of just like you know these rinky-dink shops with a little car museum, and just much much less stuff that was on display. All the jumpsuits were actually in the racquetball court back then. Mm, they have the racket. Yeah. They have the in, gold in records lining the walls, yeah. and like four or five jumpsuits maybe displayed within the racquetball court. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I went once before they had finished the new exhibit, and I thought it was you know the greatest place on earth. I thought it was amazing. <laughs> I heard about this new hotel, the guest house they were building, and that they were upgrading it all and building the Southwest Place in Memphis. I had to go the next year. I went twice that so year. So they've got a hotel that they own? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The guest house? The guest house at Graceland. It's right next door. Hmm. And um, so I, I heard about it and had to go convince my dad to take How me. large is this hotel? It's pretty big. It's a pretty big place. Okay. Um, I'd say maybe a little bit smaller than the Breakers is. Oh, well, well that's pretty big. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty big place. It's it's like Graceland on steroids. Mm. It's it's and it's just like a lot colonial. of Elvis stuff everywhere. Yeah, it's meant to look colonial, um, like Graceland. It's looks meant to look mm. like a colonial style mansion, and they did it in a tasteful way where it's not kind of like the Heartbreak Hotel was, where it was you know kind of cheesy design, um, which they actually demolished to build the guest house. But um, like the designs of the rooms are inspired by different rooms at Graceland, and there's pictures on the walls of jumpsuits. And of TCB necklaces, but it's not actual pictures of Elvis, which some fans find kind of weird. Like mm. it's taking the focus off of Elvis. And I've seen a lot of complaints about that marketing direction. But I think it's kind of cool because it, I think it's um, it, it's done in a more tasteful way to make this look more like a five-star hotel and not like a the Heartbreak Hotel. You well, know? you know, it's funny. I always wanted to go to Graceland. I always wanted to go to Memphis. That, that was my first time to Memphis. And my really only association with Memphis, for the most part, was Graceland. Mm-hmm. I was like, every time anybody brought up Memphis, I was always just think Graceland. I would love to go. Mm-hmm. So I, I finally got to go in 2018. It was amazing. Um, I was actually there in Memphis for about four or five days with a group of friends. And we went there specifically for... Um, to pay tribute to the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination, which took... I was there, too. You were there then? I was there oh, during that's that cool. week, yeah. That's cool. Um, well, so we were there at the same time. Yeah. So uh, anyway, at the end of the trip, either some of my friends who had come for that mm-hmm. purpose either didn't want to go to Graceland or they had already been on a previous trip. So me mm-hmm. and my friend Ruth went to Graceland together on our last day, and it was really special. And I got to say, um, one of the things that, I, that really struck me the most... Um, on top of all the cool stuff you mentioned, all the memorabilia, just seeing everything. This is Elvis's house. I'm here. When you go on the tour in the house and you got the little audio thing and you're going through and then you go back to the barn. And when you come back in the house and you're kind of going through almost like, I guess it's like the basement in mm-hmm. a sense. And you come in there and when you walk in, I'm assuming it's still in the same place as it was four years ago. On the left side of the wall... There's a, first of all, there's a little, there's a picture of maybe the first picture of Elvis with his family, you know, with mm-hmm. him and his parents. And you talking about the trophy building. I know. I know yeah. Exactly is that, is about. that the trophy? Oh. Bu- is it, it's downstairs. It's, mm. it's the house that's downstairs. Oh no, 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 so no. It's the, um, da- it's the most, lo- it's the lowest level of the okay. house. So in the basement, there is the TV room 
And the pool room, I believe, would be yes, the TV room and pool room are. Yeah, maybe that's so. But as you're coming in, anyway, there's this picture of Elvis and his parents when he's like a little kid mm-hmm. and must be taken in Tupelo or something. It's like the very famous picture. Mm-hmm. But right next to it, there is Elvis's father's IRS statement. I wrote this down. Right, just that to is make, the trophy building. That's yeah. yeah. You come outside, and it's that's actually oh, that's the trophy building. The house, yeah. Okay. So you see uh, Vernon Presley's IRS statement for the year 1943. Mm-hmm. Okay. this Elvis was born in 1935, right? 35? Yeah, 35. Yeah. And so he was just eight years old at the time. Vernon Presley made a total of $352.50 for the year. It's pretty incredible. And by the way, there were still like $13 of taxes taken out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, that tells you something. Yeah. And so it was like... I, I, my mouth about dropped and I'm thinking to myself, that was 1943. And if you think about it, uh, 14 years later, 1957, when Elvis was 22, mm-hmm. the Presley's purchased Graceland for $102,500, mm-hmm. which seems like a bargain today. Yeah. Also the house itself, uh, there are much nicer houses right behind us mm-hmm. <laughs> on the, on Palm right. Beach Island. So some people go and, and, and they're kind of like in, in, in the year 2022, they they, they might like, be let down a little grand, bit. Right? This isn't so great, mm-hmm. you know. Why do people care about rooms? This? Were separated. They weren't these big grand spaces. Ceilings were low. It was yeah, just and and were. and by the way, it's it's good to remember that when they bought that, uh, first of all, hundred two thousand dollars in like 1957 would be like mm-hmm. probably at least About several a million, million dollars right? today. Yeah, yeah, it's and and so and so uh, also they had 13.8 acres of land at the time with mm-hmm. with the the house and the barn right. on it and everything. Uh, but anyway, I was just thinking to myself, like, wow, mm-hmm. like how f- quickly he, they rose exactly. because of this young man's talent and his ability, his persona. Uh, he also came, um, he came to be in a world where television was just starting. Mm-hmm. So I always like to say Elvis was really the first truly worldwide celebrity that people could see on television. I agree, yeah. Right? Like, you could... There might have been bigger celebrities in history Mm -hmm. at different moments, but, like, for somebody to see on television, and they were doing an art. They Mm -hmm. weren't, like, a king. Right. right? Well, he was the king. But, I mean, they weren't, like... They weren't, you know, like a president or something like Mm -hmm. that. It wasn't like George Washington. Like, okay, maybe people knew about George Washington. Like, when Elvis was in Germany, when he was doing his discharge from the army and he was leaving Germany, more... Of reporters were at that press conference than they were when Eisenhower went to Germany the same year. That's amazing. At the same time, yeah. same year. Um, so you've been there nine, ten times, whatever mm-hmm. you... Uh, uh, have you ever met Priscilla? I have never met Priscilla. I have not had the pleasure yet. Hopefully one day I do. There was um, Elvis Week, not this year, last year. Um, I was at this little um, this little bar there, this little dive bar called Hernando's Hideaway, because a friend of mine was doing a show there. And the next day, Priscilla went into the bar and just stopped. Oh in. wow! That was so disappointing. Cause well, I'm not going to so say this on the air, but after I left Memphis, I heard a little tip about uh, where Priscilla uh, tends to go on a weekly basis. So I'll I'll, I'll give you that tip, and maybe really? you can, you can find out if it's true. One. I don't know. It's pre-COVID. So, um, have you ever met Lisa Murray? I've never met Lisa. Um, the people that I have met within the Elvis world, um, I've in, I had a podcast a little while ago with a friend of mine um, called From Tupelo to Heaven, and I interviewed Elvis's stepbrother on that. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, that was very cool. I, I've I've talked to Larry Geller, um, who was his you know spiritual advisor and hairstylist and all that, many, many times on the phone. Um, 
And these people are getting up there now. Yeah, never never met George Klein. Uh, DJ Fontana, I have a uh, signed picture from, and I talked to him by email when I got the picture, but I never actually got to meet him before he passed. Um, I met James Burton, his guitar player, at Marlowe's in Memphis last year, this barbecue restaurant. Um... Now, I've I've met some pretty have, cool people, but never any. Now, Graceland, they I know they um they have some uh you know different festivals there and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a stage there now, right? Right. Have you ever performed at Graceland? I have. I was there in August, so uh, Elvis week. Right. So most of the time, that stage is dedicated for other artists to play on, and it's more like a tour stop for. Larger yeah, I just I just saw Collective Soul in concert uh, again, and uh, they mentioned from the stage that they had performed at Graceland. Yeah. Uh, I, now they also mentioned that they recorded, recorded a, an the album, yeah. their most recent album, at Graceland, mm-hmm. and they were the first people to ever do so That's since right, Elvis. Yeah. Is that true? I believe that is true. Um, I know that Lisa Marie has done like photo shoots in there and music videos in there, but I don't think she's ever actually recorded in the room. Mm. So. I'm. I'm still. I haven't really looked that up, but uh, uh, that's pretty incredible. Right. But anyway, but you uh, have also performed there, at right? So every year at Graceland during Elvis Week, they have what is called the Ultimate Elvis Tribute Artist Contest, which is like the best of the best Elvis tribute artists who compete in festivals all across the world. And the winners of those festivals that are sanctioned by Elvis Presley Enterprises go on to compete in the semifinals and then the finals in Memphis. Wow. So I was there because I won the Orlando Festival, the only festival in Florida. Is that the Mount Dora? Um, or is that different? No, no, it's the Orlando Elvis Festival, a little bit different. Okay. Um, it actually used to be in Mount Dora, though. So I won that one in July, yeah, July 31st, the week before Elvis week. Wow. Flew up. We did the contest. I was in finals my first year. So congratulations. Well, we'll uh, we'll have you win it one year, and Hopefully. then uh, uh, you've been to Tupelo. I have. Um, I went to Tupelo for the first time uh, last year, and I was there this year as well. Well, I'm gonna have to uh, head to Tupelo with you sometime. I've never I've never been. Um, uh, my my uh, one of my good friends who's been on this podcast, Bob Rubin. He, I'm not going to say he's an Elvis fan. His wife is an Elvis fan, and his, I think his mother-in-law is an Elvis fan. But they were driving back from Colorado on a on a trip, and they he just told me like a week ago that they stopped in Tupelo, and his wife was just having, um, you know, uh, I guess convulsions or something. But no, uh, <laughs> moment. She, he showed me pictures of Elvis's home, and I guess they mm-hmm. moved it a few hundred yards or something yeah. from where it was. But that's that's pretty cool. I love to go to the birthplace. Um, so what so what did you think about the most recent Elvis movie? What are your kind of uh, original thoughts? I've mentioned thoughts? it like five times, so I think yeah. it's safe to say I liked it. Yeah, you liked but, it. Um, yeah, it was it was a fantastic film. Um, I, w- I was really worried when I heard that they were making an Elvis film <laughs> because there have been so many terrible ones over the years. There are so many like made-for-TV Elvis biopics that never do justice, except for the only one that I thought was good was this one that starred um, Jonathan Rhys Myers and Randy Quaid. Randy Quaid played mm. the colonel. And I used to think that was the greatest Elvis movie ever made. It was made in 2005. And after seeing the new one, I kind of looked down on it because it's not so great anymore. But uh, I was really worried about it because I was worried that they would take the same creative licenses that they took with Bohemian Rhapsody and all those films. And there are some stories that need a little bit of creative license to make them great. And I thought Elvis's is not one of those stories. It's one of those stories that's already great the way it is, and there's no reason to just make things up. And, of course, they took creative licenses with the movie, 
but they did so in a way that didn't necessarily bother me. Right, I, I agree. Interesting. It, it was really interesting. Like I'm thinking of uh, kind of an early the movie when they're talking about the colonel discovering Elvis, mm-hmm. but the colonel had come from this like carnival circus background, right. and so they got this sort of these like sort of fantastic images of the colonel like as this uh, ringleader of a circus, mm-hmm. and almost like he has now found his 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 uh his greatest i don't know circus act yeah, elvis exactly and it, you know you kind of pause a little bit knowing like well elvis isn't a circus act right right but at the same time you take that kind of i i, I didn't mind that 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 uh mm-hmm. that creative license they took with that because in a sense he wasn't he was a great talent but he became the like perhaps the, the biggest brand yeah the yeah. greatest show on earth the biggest brand and so it was kind of a cool way they did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, the few things with like dates, moving dates around. And it really what all they did was they simplified the story rather mm-hmm. than just making things up. They simplified it. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that happened in the movie that I think was just like brazenly completely made up was Elvis firing the colonel on stage. But in reality, it was right after Elvis was behaving kind of strangely yeah. on stage Colonel went backstage mad at Elvis after the show and they had that exact same argument in his suite. Mm. So uh, it wasn't like it was completely made up. They just moved the setting to make it more dramatic. So it it was really just making things more dramatic and combining different moments that didn't actually happen or, or combining moments that did happen, putting them together into one moment to make them have a bigger impact. And what did you think of Austin Butler's role as Elvis? I thought Austin did such an amazing job. Um, there are very few actors, or really, he's the only actor who I've ever felt like I'm watching Elvis. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I had the same feeling. I, I mean, I watched it on the big screen and I mm-hmm. and was thinking, I feel like I looked up at the screen a few times, like, is that Austin Butler? Is that, El- or is that, or is that like some old image of Elvis they just right. draw, drawn out? Because mm-hmm. right. it just looked too good. Mm-hmm. The scene that shocked me more than anything is the scene where Priscilla is leaving him. Mm. Or sorry, spoiler, <laughs> but um, or, <laughs> it's it's a biopic. So if you know the Elvis story, you'll know what's happening. Priscilla's leaving him, and she's you know throwing the pill bottles at him and all that. And he gets up and he stumbles down the stairs. And when he's sitting on the stairs crying after she leaves, yeah, because Austin wore a lot of prosthetics for the movie. Mm. He had a fake fake jawline, fake chin, fake cheekbones, fake lips. Um, and they aged him really well, and yeah. they did it so naturally too. There's that moment where he's sitting on the stairs and he's so pale and he's crying and his hair is all messed up and he's sitting there and i just thought it was the i really felt like i was watching elvis in that moment yeah and it's interesting because with all the other moments where elvis is on stage you know you've seen elvis in those moments you've seen the videos of that that's a moment we've never seen video of elvis crying when priscilla leaves him before yeah yet you still think that it's him i also wonder who they consulted like i wonder if she was mm-hmm. consulted in any ways right for things like that mm-hmm. elvis and me priscilla's book has a bit of infactual information that she sprinkled into the book um right after elvis died before she realized how much money she could make by protecting his image ah interesting <laughs> so i mean priscilla has made millions and millions of dollars and i don't dislike priscilla at all there are a lot of people who think oh my goodness she left him she cheated on him she divorced him why does she deserve to have all this money made off of his estate in reality when elvis died they were about to lose graceland elvis Presley enterprises was about to go bankrupt and Elvis's dad could not pay the property taxes on Graceland anymore because Elvis was such a big spender. And Priscilla came in and she thought, 
oh my gosh, let's turn this into a tourist attraction. Let's brand Elvis's image. He, she was the first one ever to copyright somebody's likeness. Mm. I mean, she was just a brilliant. Priscilla was. Yeah. Wow. She was a brilliant businesswoman. Before then, everybody was making these cheap Elvis t-shirts. And it's too bad. Uh, maybe she couldn't be uh, taking over the job of Colonel Parker before Elvis exactly. passed. Yeah. She was just a brilliant businesswoman as she came in. Speaking of Priscilla, um, I assume you've seen, I think we've talked about this. You've seen um, the HBO, I think it was HBO. That, uh, the Searcher? Uh, the Searcher. Elvis Presley, The mm-hmm. Searcher. Uh, 2019, I think. So she's one of the narrators, as is Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen and some others. It was I thought it. So if anybody hasn't seen it, I think mm-hmm. go find it. It's either on HBO or it's some on HBO something Max, else. Yeah. HBO Max, uh, two part series. It's about an hour and a half each part. Mm-hmm. Um, I would actually venture to say it might be better than seeing the Elvis movie. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's, it's more a of a documentary one. though. Yeah, it's yeah. a good documentary. The one thing that I don't like about The Searcher. And I feel this way about a lot of projects that Priscilla's involved with. And once again, not knocking Priscilla. She's a wonderful businesswoman, and she's done amazing things for the estate. But unfortunately, Priscilla likes to act like Elvis died after she left, which I think is really sad. Elvis had an amazing career after they were divorced. He was still happy after they were divorced. So I see what you're saying. So like like that that basically... um, She acts like it's the last nail in the It's the last thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, and he had a resurgence after that for exactly. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had the Aloha from Hawaii special. He was very, very happy with Linda Thompson. She was his girlfriend for four and a half years, and that's really like my only complaint about the movie Elvis is that she had no role in it when I think she really should have, because I think she's the only girlfriend who deserved to have a role in that movie other than Priscilla. So, um, okay, a couple controversial things, uh, and we don't have to go deep into it. But <laughs> so, um, so first of all, speaking of Elvis died, he had, uh, let's, let's talk about his death, because mm-hmm. um, maybe, maybe you know a little bit more about this than I do. I don't want to put any words in anybody's <laughs> mouth. Um, what, I mean, so, I mean, what we kind of know is, is he died of some kind of overdose. Mm -hmm. Um, he, now it's funny when people hear this today, like younger people, they think Elvis was, and, and, and you, you can tell me, uh, your viewpoint that when they say, I I had a friend recently say, Oh, he was a big party guy. He did a lot of drugs, you know, all these sorts of things. I've heard other people say he had a lot of women that may, that may be true. Uh, I don't know. Um, and somebody recently told me, oh, I heard he, he had a lot of underage women, which I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, now we're jumping to lots of conclusions. Um, and so, uh, but I had to correct someone recently. I said, you know, actually what was interesting is uh, I learned this when I was at Graceland. It just didn't even, first of all, I never really believed Elvis was a drug addict. Like mm-hmm. when we think of a drug addict, like a rock and roll star, we think of people doing like cocaine mm-hmm. and ecstasy and heroin right. and all these sorts of crazy drugs that, to get high he he got addicted to basically prescription drugs exactly um uppers and downers he had these this crazy schedule um you could say you could blame the colonel if you want you know mm-hmm. whatever but he clearly you know he was worked to death in some ways um and so that's part of it but um when i was at graceland i was on the lisa marie plane named after his daughter and we were in the middle and there's you know there's somebody there that worked at graceland that was just you know there to answer questions and there was this uh, little bar in the middle of the plane. It looked like a little bar or something. And there was all these little mm-hmm. dispensers. And I was like, I asked them, I said, what, is, what are these little dispensers? And they said, oh, these are, um, actually Priscilla had these put on the plane. Uh, these, were, um, these were soda dispensers. I said, soda dispensers? They said, yeah, he didn't like alcohol. Mm-hmm. So he would drink soda. And, so, and Priscilla had these like little soda 
made for him or something mm-hmm. to put there. And I said, he didn't drink alcohol? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Like, like never? And they're like, yeah, pretty much never. Like, yeah, he probably had a few beers in his exactly. life, yeah. but he didn't like it. So he, he's not somebody who, like, got drunk and liked alcohol. Exactly, yeah. Elvis, if you call singing gospel music <laughs> until 6 a.m. with your backing group all night partying, then sure, yeah. He was a wild party animal singing Take My Hand, Precious Lord, all night long. <laughs> but, I mean, he was he would go up after his show and he would sing gospel music all night long that was that was his way of partying he was not one for these huge parties with drugs and all that he didn't he didn't do that he didn't drink um he very 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 rarely would ever have a drink he because he didn't like the taste of alcohol and then on top of that all the drugs that he did were all prescribed to him from a doctor who he was honestly convinced that he needed them yeah and unfortunately, he was over-prescribed. Over, over and there's this very interesting story about this one doctor who was in Memphis who used to have this big jar, this huge jar of pills on his desk at work. Who, and it, it, and it was just this huge array of random pills. And Elvis could go in there when he would go into the office and he would be able to name every single pill that was in that jar without you know any labels or anything, just by the, just by the color and the shape. So Elvis knew his prescription drugs. He thought it was medicine. And mm-hmm. the doctor would prescribe this thing and this thing and this thing. And there's a very interesting story in David Stanley's book. Um, David Stanley was Elvis' stepbrother. And his other stepbrother, Billy, and Ricky, who's another one, um, Billy actually just wrote a no- another book called um, Elvis's Faith, or something along the lines of Elvis's Faith. Oh. And... Um, and that he just was on Fox News the other day. He had a quote graphic of him put on Fox News' Instagram page, which I mean, it's so cool because I mean, I interviewed this guy last year. That's awesome. But there's this one story that David Stanley told. So David, his stepbrother, or was always, his younger stepbrother, was always getting in trouble. I mean, this guy was a rock and roll party animal in the 70s. Elvis was bailing him out of every kind of trouble in the world. This He was like a real piece of work. And it was always like very sweep this under the rug don't let this get in the papers and really just ignored by everybody. But he was part of the entourage. And one day he came into Elvis's bedroom and he was sniffling and Elvis was like, what's going on? Oh, my sinuses are all clogged. Elvis gets up out of his bed and goes, I got just the thing. And he goes into his room. He takes out this blue vial of liquid and Mm. he takes a cotton swab and tells him to put it in his nose and breathe in. And it was like a medical thing. And David inhales and realizes this is medical grade cocaine and Elvis was using it to clear his sinuses. Oh, wow. <laughs> so doctors were prescribing him things as strong as cocaine as sinus medication to yeah. be able to clear his nose. And, so, you know, and regard, you know, the thing is, it's also interesting. Um, I, I say in some ways, too, that Elvis was um, I never like to say somebody's a victim because they're they're mm-hmm. you know, they're who they are, they're whatever. Right. But. In, in a way, in a way that c- celebrities can be victims of being famous, mm-hmm. um, if if that's a thing, you know, if, if, you, if you want to talk about, I guess I would put it this way: when you're when you're famous, um, you know, they, they'd say if, when you're rich, they say more money, more problems, right? Mm-hmm. But like when you're famous, you have just new things you have to deal with. Exactly. You you can't go anywhere without people recognizing you. You're constantly interrupted. You can take that as. Um, you could have you could have gratitude for that 
like, hey, I'm thankful all these people support me and recognize me. I mean, it could also work the reverse if you're not a well-liked celebrity, exactly. uh, right? So, but um, people hate you and they show up and they want to throw eggs at you. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you're, you're trapped a little bit as well by your celebrity. Um, and when you're a performer and you're constantly going, so he, he recorded, I think it was over 700 songs. Mm-hmm. I think, I want to say it was around 50 or 60 were like totally original Elvis songs. You can tell me if I'm well, wrong. Uh, um, Elvis didn't write his music. He had songwriters, and yeah. a lot of them were covers of songs that he liked, and a, most of them weren't actually... Um, they were songs that nobody knew, but nobody Elvis knew, knew them. Yeah. So Elvis he made them, them and he made them. Yeah, he made them famous. So And then he had songwriters who would write songs for movies and whatnot. Yeah. Performed and, 30, he, he produced 31 feature films. Mm-hmm. So if you think about uh, what the point I was trying to make is 700-something recorded songs, mm-hmm. 31 featured films. Like I think he, was, he did a couple concerts. He also did some Two various tours, films, yeah. right? Like all these things. Um, so he, and he, he died at 41. 42. 42, yeah. 42. So it's like, wow, like this person really, between the ages of, say, like 18 and 42, uh, <clears throat> not to mention... Was it two years in the military? Yep. Two years abroad. Um, and like, wow, this person was really worked to death in a sense, yeah, right? Yeah, um, And, but all the things he had to deal with, and then he's doing these Vegas shows, oftentimes two shows a day mm-hmm. for, and this went on for like years. Yeah, sometimes three shows a day. Sometimes the Hilton would give him an extra like $50,000 to add a 3 a.m. show. Yeah. And he would do everything. Hard to say no. Yeah. And, and so... He's and he loved it, right? He loved being mm-hmm. with the people. He loved it, all those sorts of things. Poured his poured his heart and soul into it, um, and then being prescribed these these uppers and downers, basically to 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 stay regular on this lifestyle. But mm-hmm. regardless of whether those drugs were okay or whether they were like almost like cocaine, mm-hmm. uh, either way, like you, drugs have you have you get addicted. Yeah, there's right? no difference between prescription drugs yeah. and street drugs. The only difference is one is legal, one isn't. Yeah, and it's a way for Big Pharma to who is in cahoots with every you know lobbyist and government person. It's a way for them to keep their control on the drug market. I mean, mm-hmm. if somebody can prescribe you heroin just because you have money, why why is that different than somebody buying heroin from a drug dealer? It's really not. It's just more within the control of the government yeah it's it's the power brokers yeah that, that so so i have a friend of mine who's been on this podcast uh i want to say it was somewhere in episode 20 something we're now on like 117 mm-hmm. um so he's a good friend of mine evan Ernst. he's also a featured innovator in my new community fearless journeys um he uh he saw a little post i put up yesterday that i was going to be interviewing you <laughs> and um he doesn't know who you are he just saw my little like do you have any questions about elvis that maybe uh maybe matt can answer so one of the things he told me, and I sent you the link actually to the article, uh, and I never heard this before, that there's a theory out there that the reason Elvis died was because he had a genetic heart condition. And this has been, there's, there's this article here about DNA analysis shows this. I don't know where they got his mm-hmm. DNA. Um, but anyway, um, t- uh, when I sent that to you, ha- I thought you had an interesting response. So I don't know what you know about this theory, but... Right. So there is a, an author um, named Sally A. Hodel, a very nice woman. She actually sent me a copy of the book when it first came out for nothing, signed and mailed it to me because I was doing a podcast at the time and said, hey, I just saw your podcast with Billy Stanley or whoever I had interviewed that week. I think it was Billy and um, sent me a copy of the book. And I, I just you know started reading it and I 
was looking at this thing and it said, okay, Elvis had this condition, this condition, and this condition from birth. I mean, his mother died at 47. Mm-hmm. Um, his dad didn't live super long too. He was in his sixties. Um, so yes, Elvis had his, his own health issues that were there from birth. But I think that a lot of this is a marketing ploy for books like this and people who want to push these theories. It's brilliant because it tells Elvis fans what they want to hear. Yeah. So for years since the seventies, Elvis fans are wanting to point the finger at the Colonel or the entourage or the doctors or this and this and that. Um, for Elvis's death, and they want to say, oh, it was this one and that one. And in reality, or now, it was his own health that he had from birth. It's a way of thinking in your own head that Elvis was perfect, and he did nothing wrong in his life, and he was just either A, a victim, or B, destined to die young and that it was just his fate and it was going to happen whether he was famous or whether he made those bad decisions or not but unfortunately elvis was addicted to these pills and was prescribed an enormous amount of pills that he was taking even though he knew how dangerous they were not to mention he didn't live the healthiest lifestyle Um, he was getting overweight he was Mm -hmm. eating crazy stuff you know so Mm Um, you know, he didn't look the greatest near the end. Yeah, exactly. There's not stories. to mention his mental health. Mm-hmm. There's stories from Linda Thompson, who has an amazing book. She actually married Bruce Jenner after she broke up with Elvis, which is crazy. <laughs> but um, well, yeah, interesting. It's very, very interesting choice. That whole husband. that whole weird family tree, like Elvis's daughter Lisa Marie married Michael, Michael Jackson. Jackson for a brief period. Yeah, I remember when that whole thing Bruce making her related to the Kardashians and the, it's yeah. Like so what a, what a strange <laughs> celebrity culture stemming from Elvis in some ways. Very, very strange. But Linda told, told all these stories in her book that Elvis would ask her to go down and get him a popsicle and she'd run down, she'd give him a popsicle and he'd ask for another one and another one <laughs> and another one until he'd eaten like three boxes of popsicles. And she was like, honey, you really need to slow down. And he'd be like, he'd just get mad and say, no, go get me another popsicle. And if you won't, I'll go get somebody else to do it. Because yeah. unfortunately, if one person were to stand up to him, another person would give him whatever he wanted. If Dr. Nick would say, okay, you've had enough of these drugs, he'd go to Dr. Ghanem and he'd give them. Yeah, I think that's that's another downfall of, of being wealthy and famous is a lot of things are, you kind of get used to things being on demand, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. and uh, our whole culture is experiencing that right now. I mean, that Elvis was an exception at that point, our whole culture today is everything we want on demand, right? Mm-hmm. And it, we kind of expect a lot that exactly. we take for granted. Um, I mean, if Elvis had Uber Eats, it'd be a nightmare. <laughs> oh my lord, yeah. Uh, so, um, so, uh, so, I, so this is kind of a funny statement. I've made this before. I've thrown thrown this on Facebook. People are like, "Francisco, you're crazy." Um, so, I, I would say when I before I walked into Graceland, I was a big Elvis fan. Mm-hmm. When I walked out of Graceland, I was probably a hundred times more of an Elvis fan. Mm-hmm. I think I, I say that because you really, you got to be there. You got to see the whole story. I was there for, I don't know, four hours. I don't know how long I was there. I was there for a long time. I read everything. Right. I read uh, so many letters. I walked, I went to the gravesite. I mean, it's a cool thing. Like like you mentioned, when you go across the street and you go to that big megaplex thing, whatever mm-hmm. you call that, they just got so, they got so many of his cars. I remember walking into one room and seeing the 31 movie posters and I was like, I knew Elvis did a lot of movies. He did 31 movies? Exactly. And then two concert films on top of that. Yeah, it was crazy. So I, I'm walking out. We're literally, my friend Ruth Malhotra and I, were walking out of the whole, after the whole experience, where we just called an Uber. We're standing there. And I was just like, in, like this mesmerized. Mm-hmm. And I said to Ruth, I said, Ruth, I say this in all seriousness. 
I think Elvis Presley may have been the greatest American to ever live. <laughs> and I agree with that statement. <laughs> so, so, of course, you agree with that. Um, so, I say this for... So, people ask me when I put that on there, they're like, Francisco, really? Like, he had some issues, right? <laughs> or something like right. what we just talked about. I said, well, first of all, here are so many parts of the Elvis Presley story. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this a couple times already. Almost nobody knows. Very few people know this, like, unless they really follow out with the story that he had a twin brother that died at birth. Mm -hmm. Like, there's something almost biblical about that, like, when you see, like, stories of people who who become legendary. Um, And they didn't even know he was there because his twin brother was stillborn, and then all mm. of a sudden they realized there was another baby coming. She didn't even know she was having twins. Yeah, at that time, you don't know it until until it's happening. Yeah. Um, So, and, and that was a cool thing that you mentioned about Uncle Jesse, the character on Full House, is named Jesse because... John Stamos was an Elvis fan and wanted to be wanted to be be Mm -hmm. a character that was an Elvis fan. I'd never knew that. But the biggest thing is, you obviously you take the rags to riches story of Elvis, uh, seeing that IRS statement of Vernon Presley making three hundred fifty two dollars in nineteen forty three, and then one hundred two thousand. I mean, you're just like this is the American dream, kind of like getting to to not just be wealthy, but to 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 explore your talent. I mean, the racquetball court costs more than the house. Building yeah. the racquetball court cost more than the house did, which just tells you everything. That's I mean, incredible. The other thing that really struck me was, you know, they buy that house when Elvis is 22 years old. He's mm-hmm. now one of the biggest stars on the planet at 22, and he moves his parents in with him. Mm-hmm. And I thought, who would do this today? What right. 22? Like, I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to, like, judge anybody, but I'm thinking, like, Justin Bieber or, like, <laughs> you just think of, like, whatever big, huge celebrity when they're like 22 and they've made it big, they're getting their own house. Mom and dad, I'll get you another house down, you know, wherever yeah. you want it. Who brings their mom, dad, grandma, and aunt with them? Yeah, <laughs> grandma and aunt too. Yeah. yeah, so just to me, I was like, that really struck me. So I tell people, Elvis was a family man. And then they go, family man, he got a divorce. He may have slept with all these other women. You know, we, you know, there's no there's no uh, 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 total yeah. proof on all that. There were two very different Elvises and David yeah. Stanley talks a lot about this in his book. He grew up with Elvis being a very, very conservative family man who had strong family Christian moral values. Then he'd go on the road, and what happens on the road stays on the road. And it's just yeah. like this is a different side of me that nobody else sees. Just ignore it. And when I get home, I'm going to be a family man. Yeah, and then of course you have the incredible talent, the incredible work ethic. Um, then the, what really struck me is again, I knew the story that he had been drafted into the military, but really seeing kind of the full story when you're mm-hmm. at Graceland and actually reading letters that were written back and forth between the draft board and Elvis. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I could like hear him speaking in while I was reading these letters because I was like, this sounds like Elvis. Mm-hmm. And he's like postponing. He's like, I'm in the middle of shooting two movies. There's nothing greater that I want to do than serve my country. Can I just get like a 30-day <laughs> extension so I could finish? Mm-hmm. Because I also owe a responsibility to these movie companies that have invested all this money mm-hmm. in these movies. And I was like... What a reasonable request. I mean, you're literally like the biggest celebrity on the planet. And I was like, so I still, tell me if you have any insight onto this. I'm still like, why was Elvis Presley drafted in uh, whatever, early 50s, whatever it was? Mm -hmm. Because I'm thinking uh, very few Americans were being drafted at that point. There wasn't any imminent war threat other than we were sending people to a Cold War zone of West Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, It almost seems conspiratorial to me. Whether it's, it might be pro-Elvis conspiracy, it might mm-hmm. be anti-Elvis conspiracy, but um, it just seems odd. Yeah, so in the um, in the film, Elvis, they, they make it like the colonel arranged it. Yeah. Which there's no 
factual backing to being that way. But it is a little bit coincidental. I don't I, I've also heard other people, I won't mention their names, tell me that as well. Mm-hmm. They think it was the Colonel's idea too. Yeah. Before the Elvis movie. I mean, Colonel can't enlist somebody. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also the colonel was an illegal immigrant. Exactly. I didn't really think he has is in cahoots with the government. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's happening. So I really think that there was just a lot of people who were very concerned with what rock and roll was doing. I mean, rock and roll wasn't contributing to juvenile delinquency, a culture that other rock stars were pushing was. And not only rock and roll, I mean, Juvenile delinquency was a problem in 1952 with The Wild One. The Wild One is with a bunch of raunchy jazz music. They said the same thing about jazz in the 20s. I mean, music does not contribute to juvenile delinquency. A culture of celebrities pushes juvenile delinquency. And just because Elvis is the king of rock and roll does not make him a delinquent like some of the other rock and rollers. You look at Jerry Lee Lewis, that's somebody who contributed to juvenile delinquency. So um, do you think there's a plausible theory that... uh, Maybe the powers that be said, let's get this guy off stage and send him somewhere for so. two years. I think so. I think there's a there's a huge possibility that they were getting so many letters from parents and there were people on TV every day saying that our country is sick and whatever. Uh, they thought, okay, this is an easy way out. And then Colonel gets word of this and he thinks... This is brilliant. This is going to clean up his image. This is going to be the way that we get out of all the attacks. You're going to go into the army. You're not going to accept their request for you to be in the special services. You're going to go in like everybody else. When you get out, you're going to be an all-American boy, and you're going to be able to sing songs with Frank Sinatra. Yeah, and that's what happened. And I like your wording there. You're going to clean up your image because it wasn't like he needed to clean up his act. He didn't change. Exactly. It was his image that changed, and he came back, and then it seems like... Hollywood made a great movie, G.I. Blues, mm-hmm. with him. And so it seemed like they almost used the service. And at the same time, it almost seems like if I was plotting a conspiracy during the early days of the Cold War, I would take one of the greatest superstars on the planet that is one of our fellow Americans, mm-hmm. and I would position him as an American military hero. Exactly. Right? And and I would uh, now it's funny though cuz like I feel like there's it's been 70 years since that and, and nobody knows. Nobody knows nobody any knows conspiracy. But it just seems like everything um you look at all the stuff the government was doing in the 50s. Yeah. I mean, there was some way crazy stuff they were doing. Yeah. I mean, the CIA, the CIA, the FBI, they were doing some really weird stuff back then. That's all documented. And you think, okay, well, if they were literally trying to figure out mind control to compete with Russia, why wouldn't they draft Elvis Presley? So just like I said, it's hard to imagine a 22-year-old superstar today moving their parents and grandma and aunt in with Mm -hmm. them into their new home. It's also hard for me to believe that one of those superstars would, in the height of their peak of their career, uh, go and serve in the military for two years and, and you know, even though they might have dribbled some songs and movies out while he was there, he didn't make anything new exactly. while he was there. It's hard for me to, to see somebody doing that today. And they're not. And obviously, there's not like a draft today. There mm-hmm. could be tomorrow, for, for all we know. Um, but that also seemed really interesting to me. Like, here's the guy who loved his country, expressed it, felt a debt of gratitude to his country because he, was, he got to use his talent to, to really have this rags to riches story. Mm-hmm. Um, And he was proud of his service, too. I mean, it wasn't like he was dreading it in any way, either. Because when he was first drafted, 
he was going through basic training and he had just finished all that and before he was going to go off to germany and you know serve his year and a half there or yeah he was there for a year and a half he was six months in in texas and um rca called him and said before you go off on your leave we need you to record these songs so when you're gone we can dribble out these things he showed up at, at the studio in full uniform uh, and they asked him, yeah. why are you in full uniform right now you're on leave you don't you don't need to be doing this well i'm proud of it I'm yeah. sorry. He recorded One Night With You, one of the most like sexy, seductive, provocative songs in the world, wearing an army uniform. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, so he also made 31 movies, as mentioned, two concert films. But also, I think his role, in a sense, uh, and not that he was a political person. Um, in fact, he seemed to try to stay out of political In the things. public sense, yeah, he, he did not want to be a part but of it. But he, um, it seems like in the civil rights era... Some people today might say, oh, well, you know, white Elvis stole black music, Oof. right? You're Whereas get actually, on this one, huh? <laughs> yeah, I think the movie did a really great job in showing him his interactions with um, a lot of the, you know, really, really, really great black musicians like B.B. King mm -hmm. and many others, um, and how he took a lot of, uh, he did take a, what the black music he liked that he wasn't supposed to be listening to, mm -hmm. and the people he wasn't supposed yeah. to be hanging out with. And he took it and he made it mainstream. And he opened the door for them and made them millions of dollars and made them into icons. I imagine those people things. got royalties. Yeah, they did. You're right, yeah. They did. I mean, if, what's his name? Um, the fellow who wrote Don't Be Cruel. Um, oh my goodness, his name is escaping me right now. But he wrote Don't Be Cruel, All Shook Up, Return to Sender. Um, he wrote a lot of songs in the 50s for Elvis. And then I think Return to Sender was one of the last songs he wrote for him. Uh, in 1962, but he was writing a lot of these hit songs. If it was so easy to write songs for and and make them successful songs, then why didn't you just record them yourself? If why why did they not sell? It's because Elvis's version of "That's Alright, Mama" is a whole lot better than Big Boy Crudup's yeah, version. Yeah, that's, of that's true right, too. Mama. I mean, Elvis took these songs and he made them hit songs. In 1969, there's a singer named Mark James who records at American Sound Studios with the house band with an original song and an original arrangement. The song is called Suspicious Minds. Elvis records a song less than a year later with the same musicians in the same studio hmm. in the exact same arrangement, completely identical to Mark James's version. Elvis is the number one hit. Mark James's is never heard of. Mark James is white. Yeah. So I kind of feel like um, in that era too, and you know, I think it's portrayed well in the movie, um, is, uh, you know, when he, after Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy are both killed in 1968, he's got this Christmas special mm -hmm. in 1968, and he him and his team, they come up with this song, um, If I Can Dream, and he delivers this surprise performance, mm -hmm. um, and it's incredible. And it's interesting, because when you look at the song, the music, Elvis's words, he doesn't have to say anything about a specific assassination, a specific political movement. He just cut through the culture with the right. music, and it spoke to people. Exactly. It's it's such an incredible song. I mean, If I Could Dream was my favorite Elvis song for, for so, so long. Um, yeah, just the time that the country had gone through in like 1967 to 1972, so much happened, and the entire country was falling apart, but who stayed at the forefront, never made a political statement, kept the country together, 
and was still hailed as king when it seemed like every other celebrity was being torn down. I mean, you look at, mm-hmm. you know, you have all the, the Manson family stuff and Nixon's having Watergate and all these celebrities are going out there and just, you know, frankly being idiots with the stuff that they're promoting. I mean, the Beatles are going out there saying, oh, we're more popular than Jesus Christ and whatnot. <laughs> and Elvis didn't do any of that. I mean, Elvis stayed good, clean, and wholesome and something that everybody loved at a time when our country was more divided than ever. What I thought was interesting, I think this is in the Searcher documentary, they point out that when Elvis, you know, so when Elvis comes back, you know, he's gone for two years from into the military mm-hmm. and uh, music is rapidly changing and mm-hmm. the way people are getting in and, and, and just the kind of music the Beatles are now coming to America, all these sorts mm-hmm. of things are starting to happen. And instead of like just adapting with the times, he does a little bit of that. Like, like there's different things he does, but they said, you know, these people are producing much harder rock music. Mm-hmm. Elvis never really wanted to go that. He puts out a gospel album. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. like, who, like who does that? Mm-hmm. He just exactly. decided to, to record music that he cared about. Exactly. That's, and that's something that's so great about If I Can Dream. That song made him realize he never wanted to sing another song he didn't believe in. After all those movies where he was singing to turtles or yeah. bulls, he sang a song called Dominic to a Bull in 1967. <laughs> Right after that, he goes and he records If I Can Dream, and he decides from that moment on that he only wants to record the music that he wants to sing. And thank goodness he got out of the movie contracts, because Colonel was never one to say, You're, you have to record this kind of material, you have to record this song. Colonel never did that, he always gave him creative license. But Colonel did sign movie deals where the directors would say, okay, well, we have this song to fit this scene, and okay, I'm sorry, Elvis, you have to do it. You signed on to do this movie because you need the money because you spend like a drunken sailor. Yeah. So there's so many amazing things about the Elvis story that really came together for me when I was in Graceland, and when I walked out and made that statement, I think Elvis Presley might be the greatest American of all time. That's A lot of the things we just talked about are some of the reasons I say that, because all these sort of things come together in this one person at a really particularly interesting time in American history. Um, you know, I think you got to put him up there in one of the greatest Americans mm-hmm. of all time. And, and again, his, his legacy still lives on, you know. Exactly. And it's living on through Matt Stone. Yeah. yeah. Mean, <laughs> it, what's so great about Elvis is that it, it really is timeless. And you listen to Elvis's music of the 60s and 70s. It doesn't sound like any other song that's being recorded in the right. 60s and 70s. Suspicious Minds does not sound like a song from 1969. It's completely different. Elvis Presley is his own genre. Mm-hmm. It's not rock and roll or pop or anything else. It's it, his music is its own. By the way, have you ever been to Stack Studios in Memphis? I haven't, which is very disappointing because when I was there for Elvis week, we were about to leave Memphis the next day and we were going to go to Stacks and unfortunately it was i think it was like a monday and they're closed on mondays uh i was there that week and it's it, i highly recommend it um one of the things that i, I went there before i went to graceland mm-hmm. one of the things that was really interesting that they pointed out was um before martin luther king was killed in the 50s and 60s white and black artists were all coming together but the most interesting thing was we almost forget living in a time we do now that we have you know we have access to every uh, song ever created in like three seconds on my phone on mm-hmm. Spotify, Amazon Music, whatever. Um, at that time, people didn't, right? I mean, right. people were getting recorded music, but it was it was very geographical mm-hmm. based on where you're at. So where Memphis is located geographically, you're getting like the jazz coming up from New Orleans, the blues coming up down from Chicago, the Mo- Motown in Detroit. You're getting the country music of Nashville and maybe Texas, a different kind of genre. You're getting all sorts of different music. And what's at the center of that is 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 Memphis. Is mm-hmm. that's where geographically located. And so, in a sense, for Elvis from Tupelo, Mississippi to Memphis, 
he's being born and coming into his own in that time he period. He was bombarded by every yeah. kind of music that you can imagine at the time, and he took what he liked out of all of it, and he put it together to make something complete, completely unique, which is why I don't like when people say that Elvis stole black music or that Elvis um, r- recorded black music because music doesn't have color. Yeah, I mean, he took he took country music, which was primarily sung by whites. He took black or blues music that was primarily sung by blacks, and he put them together to create rock and roll. It's the same thing as saying that Chuck Berry stole white music because he recorded (laughs) country music. He didn't steal white music. He recorded music that he liked. So, Matt, um, I know we're we're deep into this interview here. I'm gonna just ask you some really quick. uh, Let's call them like rapid fire questions. Uh, Just quick answers here. Uh, uh, As I mentioned, Elvis recorded like a lot. 700 something songs whatever what is your favorite elvis song um it's very hard to pick one but just pretend and bridge over troubled water are my two favorites at the moment just pretend and bridge over troubled water and you also mentioned if i can dream earlier Mm -hmm. right um and okay uh what is your favorite elvis movie um i used to say follow that dream and change of habit but since i've done the gi blues show and watched it over and over and over and over again gi blues has become much gi blues yeah that's great um why um another question uh where do you get your elvis wardrobe and how many different i don't know if you call them costumes but how many different uh pieces of wardrobe do you have <laughs> uh so there's a couple different companies that make it uh being k enterprises ajm elvis costumes and pro elvis jumpsuits are the three main companies i've been using a lot of stuff from pro elvis jumpsuits for the jumpsuit side of things lately and i've been using ajm a lot for the shirts um I have so much stuff, um, but when it comes to actual stage outfits that I'd be wearing in a theater, not my casual wear that I would wear at the Islander, uh, I have, I'm somewhere around 20 with that. And um, do you perform any music outside of Elvis? Do you uh, do you have a band, anything like that? Uh, I don't, and when I first started out, I was you know being more Matt Stone singing Elvis's songs or other music that I liked, and there's artists that I like, but and they tend to be older artists as well, but there's nothing that I do on stage. It's just more me singing in the car. All right. Speaking of movies, another just quick uh, commentary. Uh, Have you seen the movie uh, with Nixon and Elvis? I forget the name of the movie. Uh, Yeah, there's a movie called Elvis and Nixon that came out with Kevin Spacey and Michael Shannon. And I thought that movie was so terrible. (laughs) But there's another one called Elvis Meets Nixon. That was a TV movie made for Showtime in 1997 with uh, Rick Peters plays Elvis. Um, And I can't remember who plays Nixon, but it's a satire. And Rick Peters looks nothing like Elvis, but he plays the character unbelievably. I'll have to go back and find funny. that one. You know, I once worked at the National Archives. Uh, I worked at the, the the building that was in College Park, Maryland. It's called mm-hmm. Archives 2 yeah. when I was in grad school. But there was a picture there that we gave out. Like, it was just sitting at the desk. Uh, and it was the picture of Nixon meeting Elvis. <laughs> and they told me that is the most... The reason we had so many just sitting there by the desk, it was the most requested picture at the National Archives. Mm-hmm. So... Again, another reason Elvis might be the greatest American that ever lived. Yeah. But Elvis went there uh, seeking to uh, help the government yeah. and Nixon fight, fight drugs. drugs. So it's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing irony. Story. Um, so, uh, you know, again, we could go on and talk about a lot of things. Oh, one last question I wanted to ask you regarding Elvis. Uh, you haven't been to RCA Studio B. I haven't been to Studio B, which is so disappointing. Because In Nashville. Because we going to go. Yeah. yeah. So um, I don't know when people will be listening or watching to this podcast because in less than two weeks from the time we're sitting here, I'm going to be leading a Fearless Journeys group trip to Nashville. Great. We're going to go to the Nashville Songwriters Association International. We sat down with the exec. We're going to sit down with the executive director, uh, Bart Herbison, 
on that trip. And I'm trying to remember what episode I want to say I had him on episode 112 or something. Um, uh, so uh, I'll get to actually meet him in person this time. We did it over Zoom. But uh, right behind them is RCA Studio mm-hmm. B. So we're going to tour that. I'm excited. Elvis recorded over 100 songs there. Yes. So these are uh, some of the fun things we like to do on the Fearless Journeys community. So if people are listening or watching and want to be part of it, we do have some memberships. And also we do have some great group trips. Also doing a trip to Guatemala in December. That'll be our third group trip to Guatemala. And then um, I just announced a trip to Argentina and Uruguay for next March. So more trips coming. Um, And maybe we'll have to do one to Memphis. It's a good idea. uh, Because I think that's a good idea. Yes, we'll have have Matt with us. Um, But Matt, uh, last question for you. Uh, What is next for Matt Stone? Uh, Really, the goal right now is to keep growing the venues. I mean, I've gone from playing... Um, senior homes to doing small theaters of a few hundred seats within you know just a few years hopefully those few hundred seat theaters soon become you know 2,000 seat theaters and the audiences get bigger and the production gets bigger uh, right now I'm working with a new band that we've booked a few shows with oh cool um, I'm actually going to be at the South Florida Fair on January 23rd full band in the on the bigger stage South Florida like Fair that. that's West Palm Beach yep on the big stage yep, what's on, what's going on there on the bigger stage uh, January 23rd uh, we're just doing the Elvis Presley experience show full band and all that um, we're using the five-piece band, so it's a rhythm section and a backing singer. I'd like, as the audiences get bigger and bigger and bigger, having a complete Elvis. Production. Is that like your own shows, or part of some kind of festival? It's it's part of the Ferris concert series. Gotcha. So it's a full show, and it's my show that night, but it's part of their concert series. I think they're having like Van Halen one night. And so Matt Stone as Elvis on Facebook and yep. YouTube, and then at Real Matt Stone yep. on Instagram. And Matt well, Stone Matt is and what's what's that? MattStoneIsElvis.com. MattStoneIsElvis.com. Can people book you privately? They can. Because I do know people that saw my post and said, I know people that wanted to have an Elvis uh, in person, or we're going to have to correct them, tribute artist, <laughs> uh, come and perform at you know my birthday party mm-hmm. or you know whatever it is. Yeah, all the contact party. info is on the website. Okay, awesome. So RealMattStoneIsElvis.com. MattStoneIsElvis.com. Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. MattStoneIsElvis.com. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Matt. And I think, by the way, I just want to say thanks for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. And thanks for being an agent of innovation yourself. Thank you very much for being one as well. (laughs) All right. Thank you.